Good morning. It's uh, good to be back with you. I appreciate uh, Ben and what he shared the last couple Sundays on discipleship. What a challenging message those were. We pray, just appreciate so much those insights and the applications that we'll see in the coming days from those sermons. This morning we're back in 1 Peter. We're in the fourth chapter as I read to you earlier. If you will turn there, we continue our ongoing verse-by-verse exposition of this uh, great epistle. Very challenging epistle. It's interesting. Um, in some ways, there are some of the things that are said in this epistle that are somewhat removed from us, um, but yet becoming more and more true of us. They're removed from us in the sense that these people are going through some incredible persecution. And so sometimes it's, you know, we're sitting there going, well, that happens in other places, that happens at other times to Christians, that doesn't happen to us. Uh, and, you know, like we were teaching 1 Corinthians, almost every chapter you found an application. And sometimes when we're going through 1 Peter, you go, well, how does that really fit with that suffering they're going through? How does that fit in with the suffering uh, that we are going through, which seems so minimal? We can't get a parking space somewhere and we get, we're suffering, you know, or something. When these people, their very lives, uh, their very lives are um, being threatened. And Nero is uh, about to unleash on uh, Christianity, this uh, persecution, and uh, so we have the context here. Um, it, it's interesting too in First Peter or Second Peter chapter three. You don't have to turn there, but in Second Peter chapter three, verse fifteen, uh, Peter makes an interesting statement. He he makes the statement that Paul has written some letters, and they're letters that are difficult to understand. And I read that, and I thought to myself, you know, Peter, you have things that are very difficult to understand. Uh, it's one thing to say that about Paul. I really, it's minimal compared to the, some of those difficult passages in the Bible are in First Peter, if you read what some commentators say. And we're gonna see, we saw some last time, two weeks ago, we saw, we saw those with uh, uh, Christ preaching to demons in prison. Uh, we saw the Noah and the ark and how that fits into the, context of this letter. We talked about uh, different things like that from chapter 3 at the end. And then today, today, uh, just look at these verses. In verse 1, we had this statement, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I'm not sure what your translation says. That's New American Standard. What do you mean? Somebody ceases from sin? Uh, What do you mean in uh, verse... uh, Six, the gospel for this purpose has been preached even to those who are dead. Do we preach the gospel to the dead? What do these verses mean? And so we see difficult passages even in First Peter that uh, I would like to know which ones he had in mind for the Apostle Paul, but these are very difficult, very difficult passages. Um, it seems like the bad guys are winning to these people that Peter is writing to. And so last time, you recall in chapter 3, looking back up at verse 18 through 22, he, he gives them this um, assurance that even through the suffering, the unjust suffering that Christ experienced, victory came about. 
You see in verse 18, for Christ also died for sins. This is how this section started at the cross. The unjust suffering of Christ being beaten on the cross, being tortured on the cross, being put to death on the cross so that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, he'd be made alive in the spirit. The point of that was that even though they thought we've got him, through that suffering, he accomplished access into the presence of God for all of us. And though the next verses are somewhat difficult to understand, and we talked about them last time, he made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. I told you that basically he went to those demons who had been locked up because of their sin of going after the strange flesh of Genesis chapter 6, human women, a sin that was so detestable that God locked them in prison. I'm not giving you extra biblical information here, by the way. This is in First Peter, excuse me, in Second Peter and Jude and Genesis. But I'm not going to take the time to go back through all of that this morning. But the point is, he made the proclamation to them. You guys think you won? No, you didn't win. I had victory even on the cross. And he goes and preaches to those demons. And then we saw in verse 20 um, and 21, the reference to Noah, reference to the ark, reference to the fact that Christ and the identification with Christ is like the ark in the face of God's judgment. God gave victory over the judgment of, excuse me, Christ gave victory over the judgment of God even. It shields you from the judgment of God. Those who believe in him and those who follow him and those who seek to Christ as the ark, a protection from the wrath of God that will come. If you're not in the ark, you drowned. You want to be in the ark, as we said that last two, three weeks ago. And Christ is that ark. To be identified with him, to be baptized, baptism, to be identified with Christ is that salvation. And then you see the ultimate victory, verse 22. He, Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So it's victory. And that's his message at the end of chapter 3, that there may be suffering, and the suffering may get bad, and the suffering may look hopeless, and there may be times when you think the enemy is winning, but it's not. It's not what it seems. Even in the suffering, you can have victory and that is the message and because we are in Christ we share in that victory with him and one day it may be hard now Peter is saying seeking to encourage them but glory glory is coming and that's when he comes now to chapter 4 verse 1 and he says, therefore, and there's no chapter divisions in the original, so this is just one text. Therefore, and you always ask yourself, what's there, what it's there for? Why is it there? And I think what we're seeing now, Peter, is, 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 who's been pointing his readers to Christ, saying glory is coming. Now he's going to tell them, what do you do in the meantime? How do you live in the meantime? How do I live for Christ until he comes in glory and takes me to glory? How do I remain faithful in the flesh? If you recall, when I read these verses earlier, this phrase, in the flesh, is used about three times. It, it, it goes back, actually, into chapter 3, when you talked about Christ having been put to death in the flesh. But you see it, you see it in um, verse 1. Um, 
since Christ has suffered in the flesh. Verse 2, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh. Verse uh, 6, it also, those who are dead for, they are judged in the flesh as men. In the flesh is a reference to the body, your, your body, your human body, your physical body. How do, I, how do I live in this physical body in the meantime? How do I live in this physical body in a way that remains faithful, even in the midst of suffering? How do I live in, in, and remain faithful when the suffering gets difficult and hard and challenging? How do I not turn away? Like in the book of Hebrews, many of those believers were facing so much persecution in their lives and many wanted to fall away, wanted to not follow Christ anymore. Those were basically people, I believe, who were sitting on the fence of Christianity. But the point is, persecution has a way of purifying the church. (laughs) Persecution has a way of purifying the church in terms of who is real and who's not, who are the wheat and who are the tares. The tares won't hang around for persecution. But how do we, as, as true believers, how do we remain faithful in the flesh? That is what he's answering for us here in these verses. We're to live in faithfulness to him. He he paid for our sin on the cross. He died for our sin. He took our sin upon him. He was judged in our place. And now we need to be resolved that we too are done with sin because of what he did and how he dealt with sin. That's kind of where these verses go. It's very difficult because you, you see that our relationship to sin has changed since we become Christians. Prior to becoming a Christian, sin dominated our lives. Prior to becoming a Christian, sin was all we knew. Once we become to Christ, our relationship to sin changes. It doesn't mean that we don't still fall into sin, but now we view it differently. Now we have a different relationship to it in the sense now that we can have victory over it. Where before I had no choice but to say yes, now I have a choice to say no. It's interesting, John Owen said this, sin in the believer is a burden which afflicts him rather than a pleasure that delights him. I think all of us could say that. If you're a Christian, I think you would amen to that statement. It's a burden to us. It's a burden to us. In his commentary, MacArthur says, every true believer lives in a tremendous battle between the desire of unredeemed flesh, unredeemed flesh, the desire of my unredeemed flesh and the compulsions of the new nature that's in me. I have this new nature that God has planted in me that loves the law of God, but yet it's, it's, wrapped in unredeemed humanity. And that's my battle. It's called indwelling sin in Romans chapter 7. We have this indwelling sin. It didn't get taken away at salvation. Listen to Paul Tripp's definition of indwelling sin. or It's called remaining sin. 
If you've never heard the term, listen to this definition. Sin still lives inside of us doing its ugly work. We are still susceptible to the seductive draw of the call of the flesh. We still have hearts that are prone to wander. We still have times when we want our own way more than we want God's way. We continue to have moments when we give way when we should resist and we resist when we should submit, end of quote. God has chosen that we have this period called sanctification. He doesn't zap us with instant holiness. He doesn't zap us with instant sinlessness. He's got this stages of sanctification that he takes us through where we grow in Christ's likeness. Justification saves me from the penalty of sin and justification is instantaneous. The moment I put my faith in Christ, I'm declared right with God. Glorification is future salvation. That is when I will one day be with Christ and be instantly changed. That too is instantaneous. Glorification, justification. Glorification is when I'm free from the presence of sin totally forever. Both of those are instantaneous, glorification and justification, but in the middle I've got sanctification. That is not instantaneous. It's a process, and God has designed it that way. He's allowed indwelling sin to remain, and that's where our battle is, and that's where we battle. Paul says it so well, and I think this is everybody's testimony who's a true believer in this room this morning. The battle of Romans chapter 7, you've seen it. I don't need to turn there. I don't have time to turn there. But in Romans 7, 20 and following, you can read it. Paul says, I see this in my members. There's this desire for God's word, God's truth, the law of God. But yet I also see in my members this flesh, this indwelling sin that resists the law of God. And I can't do the things I want to do. And I can't do the things I want to do. I I do the things I don't want to do. He talks about that battle. Back and forth. And every Christian faces that. Every Christian faces that. Folks, you got to, and you know what you can't, you got to do about sin. One thing you have to learn about sin is you can't let sin be redefined. The world doesn't want to talk about sin. Some churches don't even want to talk about sin. But sin is in us. It is present, it is real, it is our biggest enemy. It, 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 many times it defeats us, we feel defeated because of it. But to redefine sin is so dangerous because there is a cure for that and it's called repentance. And if, if, if you deny that it's sin, then you deny the cure. When people stop, start, stop calling sin, sin, when they start calling it other things, personal choice, that's somebody's bent, that's somebody, just somebody's personality, or that's a sickness or something like that. If the Bible calls it a sin, it's a sin. And the only hope for sin is the cross of Christ and repentance. If you go and redefine sin and make it something else other than what it is, then you are unredeemable. You've denied the very hope you have, could, could have in Christ. You must call it what it is. It's a sin against God. It's a violation of His holy law. And if we truly love people, we will tell them that their actions are defined by God as sin. And there's hope in the cross.
Because that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. He also burst out in this, O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body? And he breaks out into Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's our only hope. Our biggest enemy is our sin problem. And we must call it what it is. And we must recognize that even as Christians, we have to deal with this. I don't have to give in to it anymore. That's my hope. In sanctification, we've been delivered from the power of sin. You understand? In sanctification, I, I, it doesn't have the power it once had over me. I used to have to do what is said. And now I can, now I can say no by God's grace. And sometimes I have victory and go for a while and all of a sudden it rages back. That's how sin works in us. I read something recently about the advantage of, get this, the advantage of indwelling sin. Really? That almost sounds heretical. But it was written by John Newton. And basically what he says, he says, and he doesn't want the slippery slope that's okay to sin. Don't go, don't go there with this. But the point is, it makes me realize my depravity and it makes me realize His grace. It helps me, when I see my sin, I realize how bad I am and how thankful I am for the grace of God. It makes me treasure Christ all the more. And somehow in this process of sanctification, God is glorified. God is put on display as He changes us day by day as we gaze at Christ. And it's the reason I need verses like abstain from sexual immorality. It's the reason I have verses that say flee youthful lust. It's reasons we have verses like we saw earlier back in verse, um, actually I don't remember where it was, somewhere in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, abstain from fleshly lust, 1 Peter chapter 2. It's the reason I need verses like that because, we ha- because of this indwelling sin problem that we have. So he's going to give us some practical instruction, having uh, practical instruction on how to be faithful in the flesh. And I just remind you, the New Testament says that our bodies are, our, our, our fleshly bodies are, um, are like a tent, a tent. Just think of a tent. These people knew what tents were. They were, very, they were temporary housing. They were flimsy housing. But he calls us a tent. We have an earthly tent that longs for its eternal home. We're, we are, we are um, earthen vessels. Crack, we're, we're like pots, clay pots that can break and crack. And we're earthen vessels that have a treasure. I say our bodies are very weak. Our bodies are very weak. And so, the outer man is decaying, the inner man is being renewed day by day. You want to focus on the inner man. You want to focus on that changed life within you, getting it stronger and stronger so you can deal with all the outer man problems that are going to come your way. So, let me take you to verses 1 through 6 this morning and let me just show you He's, five, he's going to give out five things here. Five things about 
remaining faithful in the flesh. This is, this is what we do in the meantime. He's promised us glory at the end of chapter 3. What do I do in the meantime? This is very practical. There's not been a whole lot at times to say, how do I apply First Peter? Well, this you can apply. No questions here. You can apply this. Notice the first thing he says in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Talking about Christ's death, he suffered, he, he came fully man. He suffered in his humanity. He died on the cross. God could not die, man could die. He suffered to the point of death. He was willing to do that. He was willing to go to that kind of suffering for us. He was willing to do that and suffer like that for us, even to the point of death. And this is the first thing Peter says we need to do, and that is we need to embrace Christ's attitude about suffering. Arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Think the same way as Christ thinks when you think about suffering in your physical body. He endured suffering. Are you identifying with Christ? You're caring about the sufferings of Christ. Uh, you're the persecution, when you're persecuted, you're carrying that around in your own body because they're going after Christ. They can't get to him. They go after you. It's a military term. You're preparing for battle. You're arming yourself. Believers should prepare their suffering by arming themselves by embracing Christ's attitude. Give me the same attitude of Christ who humbled himself taking on the form of a bondservant and going through all the indignities of humanity and suffering as a man. The just for the unjust. We, you know, we get all caught up and I'm treated so unjustly. No, Christ was treated unjustly. He was totally just and he was treated unjustly. He was willing to be treated that way. We saw that back in 3.18 of Peter. And we are called to embrace his attitude towards suffering. Christ wanted to accomplish the will of God no matter what the cost. Even meant that God would turn his back on Christ when he's on the cross. For the first time in the Trinity, you you see this no longer calling him the Father because his back is turned on Christ. God the Father could not look on sin. Christ took on sin, turned his back on him in that moment of darkness Trinitarian mystery, no doubt, but the point is he endured that. That was his greatest, greatest, if you want to call it fear, was what that would be like in the garden. Take this cup from me. I think that's what he's referring to when God would turn his back on him. He he was accursed for us. And so he's saying he was obedient to death on the cross. Now you arm yourself with that same attitude. Be resolved to pay, be resolved, be resolved to follow Christ. Be resolved to do the will of God, even if it means death. Wow. Imprisonment. Wow. That's what Christ faced. He was willing to go to that extreme. That may sound foreign to you. In our prosperity gospel world, that's a foreign thought that, wow, you mean following Christ, 
remaining faithful to Christ could mean that I would die, that I must be willing to die for Christ. I must be willing to suffer for Christ. Yes, that's exactly what it means. Christ was willing to do that. Arm yourself with that same attitude. It may not mean death for everyone. It doesn't mean I go, go looking for suffering for that kind of outcome. The point is, that's what it could lead to. It's really not foreign to the gospel. It's just foreign to the American gospel. If you read in Matthew 10, 38 through 39, take up your cross and follow me. What do you think that means? That you have mother-in-law problems? And, or relational problems with somebody? That's your cross? No, that's not how they understood this. A cross was an instrument of death. To follow this man means I too might have to hang on a cross. I too might have to suffer death if I follow Christ. If any man is not willing to take up his cross, having denied himself, he's not worthy to be my disciple. Christ is calling us to full commitment to himself, even if it means to die, to be thrown into prison. They knew what that meant. That's where people were executed. He is saying to them, be willing to die for me. Be willing to give your life for me. And for many Christians around the world, that is normal. That is normal. For many Christians around the world, that is a reality. And it doesn't mean we go looking for suffering. I'm not saying anything like that. And I, I do believe that God gives a dying grace to anyone who takes through those trials. And believe me, it's not something I want either. But the point is, that is the attitude. That is the attitude. For the suffering that was set before him, for the cross that was set before him, the joy that was set before him, the results that were set before him, the fulfilling the will of God. That's what he came to do. Verse 1 also says this. He gives that command, but he moves on and gives a reason for doing that because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Some scholars say this is talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one who suffered in the flesh and ceased from sin. I don't think that's right because that implies to cease from sin, you had to have sin. So I can't say that's, you can't say that's Jesus. That's why the New American Standard and maybe your translation as well has a small H for his because he's talking about the believer. The believer. Talking about Christians in the flesh. So how do I understand this? To say those who suffer in the flesh have ceased from sin. What does that mean? How, how can we say that? We know that sin is still very much a part of our lives. How, what, what can this possibly mean? And I think, I think he's talking about in this resolve, this resolve to be done with sin because of what Christ did on the cross. I think he's talking about it from a resolution part of a point of view mostly, uh, but the point is I make it my purpose to cease from sin. I make it my purpose since Christ died for my sin, I want to cease from sin and not live for my own pleasures but for the will of God. I, I want to make a clean break with sin 
And it's certainly not a state of perfection. You can't say that. None of us, all of us know that's not true. I'm just simply talking about a state of resolution that I resolve to that, that there's no condemnation for sin. I still have attraction to it, yes. But the nerve center has been broken in me by Christ. I don't want it anymore. And, and keep this in mind, there is a sense we have already this mind when we were saved. The moment you repented and believed the gospel and you received salvation by grace alone, at that moment, your relationship with sin changed. And I said this earlier, but if you're a Christian and the Holy Spirit regenerated your soul, the old man was put to death. The death sentence stands over your sinful nature and you have been made alive in the Spirit. And there are there, go, there continues this ongoing struggle from the time we come to Christ till our glorification, but we are dead to sin, Romans chapter 6 says. Think of D-Day. Think of D-Day for a moment. D-Day has taken place in my life. D-Day has taken place in your life as a Christian. Historians say D-Day was when the Allies landed at Normandy in 1944, and that marked the beginning of the end of World War II. That event in 1944 marked the beginning of the end. But guess what? There's still the Battle of the Bulge out there to be fought. One of the bloodiest battles of the whole war. A time when the Germans made one great last stand in World War II. Victory was assured because of D-Day. But there were still battles. In a spiritual sense, it's this, you've had your spiritual D-Day. And the outcome is, of your future is secure. It's no longer in doubt. But tomorrow you may have a spiritual battle of the bulge. <laughs> so even though the remaining sinful desires are there, Christ has dealt a mortal blow to sin. It's not an issue in my relationship with God in the sense that it, I will ever face the penalty of sin. That's why, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. I hear verses like that all the time. We want to experience victory each day, but it's been broken. Sin has been broken. And then he comes to the result in verse 2. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. As I embrace this attitude that Christ had, and in the time that I have left to live, he says, in the flesh, he's saying, dedicate it to living for God. Say no to yourself and not to the leftover passions of your flesh. That's all he's saying. All the cravings of the fallen nature and, and say yes to the will of God. The remaining time that I hear have left on this earth, the chronology of the rest of my life, that's the word chronos, it's the chronology of the rest of my life, deny yourself and resolve that you're going to do the will of God. No longer what I want to do, but what God wants me to do. I will suffer for doing the will of God even to the point of dying if that's what he calls me to do. Secondly, verse three, or the second um, 
to remain faithful in the flesh. He says in verse 3, escape past lifestyle, escaping your past lifestyle. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. You spend enough, he's saying here, you spend more than enough time in the past doing what unbelievers choose to do. A lot of these people had come out of idol worship, and a lot of these things were all characteristic of their past life. This was their testimony. This is what we came out of. He says, in whatever time you have left, he's saying, you've, excuse me, he says, you spend enough time doing these things. You don't live for these things anymore. The world glamorizes all of these things, by the way. The world glamorizes all the things that you see listed there. And they're things that leave you empty. And they're things that every believer and their, your testimony have probably come to the point where you said, God, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of this. I don't want to live like this anymore. That's what brought you to Christ. You recognize this is empty. The world makes it look so attractive. It's like a broken cistern. It looks like it will satisfy, but it doesn't satisfy. It just leaves me longing. The world never tells you the results of people who live like this. The world just glamorizes these things, but they never show you the broken homes. They never show you the broken lives. They never show you the people who are strung out on all the addictions that these things produce. The world never talks about that. They only give you half of the story, and that is the temporal pleasures that this list of things brings. You need to pray your children will have a boring testimony. Just pray your kids have a boring testimony, that they didn't have to live a whole life of rebellion caught up in all these things. Just a boring testimony. Mom and dad sat with me at the dinner table and led me to Jesus. I didn't have to come out of all this other rebellion and stuff like that. But the point is, he saved them all from this rebellion. It shows the power of the gospel because this was their former life. In, you see the word sensuality, it's just the lack of personal restraint, self-restraint. It's, it's uh, violating public decency and conduct. Uh, public outburst of anger would be underneath neath this. Lack of self-control. Um, it'd be lack of self-control toward your spouse, lack of self-control to the person working behind the counter at Costco. It could be anywhere. Just public displays inappropriate. Unleashing your tongue. We're to, we're to escape these ways. Lust is a comprehensive term. Depraved cravings, uh, the desire of the fallen human nature. Colossians 3.5 says, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. Our bodies are dead to immorality. That goes back to Romans 6. We have been, we're dead. There's no longer as a master over us. As dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it's because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. You once walked in those things. That was your life. Those are things that characterized your life. Drunkenness, it's wine. It means wine, the verb is added to bubble up. It's like you're soaked in alcohol. Habitual drunkenness, going out and getting yourself bubbled up is the idea of the word. 
You drink yourself into a stupor. You want to escape problems or whatever it is, but you cannot. He says you cannot return to that lifestyle. It is not consistent with remaining faithful in the flesh. Drunkenness and faithfulness are opposed to each other. Carousing is like they had festive gatherings in, in, in uh, a religious worshiping their pagan gods and, and they would parade in the streets and engaging in all kinds of wickedness and folly. Drinking parties and uh, uh, abominable idolatries are all part of their idol worship. We would have this today. Today our idol is self, self-worship. We worship self. All about self-gratification, my desires, my wants what pleases me. See, we're, we're called to escape all of that. We're, we've been called out of that. And our, our faith, our, 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 excuse me, our, our flesh at times is, wants to pull back into those things, but he is saying, you've had time for that. He says, move past that. It's almost like the Jews, when they were taken into the wilderness, always wanted to go back to Egypt, always being pulled back toward Egypt and all the delicacies of Egypt and all the things they enjoyed in Egypt. And that's how it is with us at times. But he's saying, you want to escape that past. That's how you remain faithful in the flesh. You, 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 you embrace Christ's attitude of, of suffering and, 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 and suffering even when it calls you to sin and you say no to sin. Suffering when it calls you to even death if necessary. Embracing Christ's attitude and then also you want to be faithful in the flesh by staying away from your past, not going back. And then finally, excuse me, verse 4, not finally, but verse 4, he says, uh, you want to expect um, disapproval by unbelievers. Don't be surprised by that. In all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. Let the world never gets excited when it loses one of its own. Understand that. They don't understand you. They don't understand us. They do not understand why we even gather here on a Sunday morning when there's so many other things that you could be doing and you come to church and you bring a Bible and you give money to things and you, and you, and you do the things you do as a Christian. They do not understand that. Don't expect them to understand that. The natural man does not understand the things of God. He doesn't understand God's Word. He's not able to. His mind is set on the flesh and he cannot understand. You must pray God will open their eyes to that. But the point is, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, the idea of going into a cesspool. They can't understand, why don't you want to come with us? Why don't you want to come with us? They don't even see the destruction they're running into. And you don't need to be surprised that they're surprised. Sometimes we try to hold on to our friends and and just keep in mind that bad company can corrupt good morals. <laughs> Try to live with one foot in and one foot out. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work. If you care more about what people think than Christ does, then you will not be faithful to Christ. That's really a challenge because we want, we want to be liked and we want our people to like us and we want... Sometimes we'll even compromise the gospel to make it attractive to our friends. Well, you know, you won't talk about sin and hell and Jesus is the only way. We'll water it down just to keep the friends. 
You're not loving them, lying to them. You're denying them of the only one who can save them, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The world doesn't like anyone that's different, so they malign you. They say all kinds of evil against you. They persecute you. They vilify you. Listen to what... uh, Here's the progression of an unbelieving world moving from surprise to slander. This is by Davy. He says, you're not going, here's what they say, here's what it sounds like. You're not going to go out with us anymore? Oh, come on, loosen up and live a little. What do you mean you think it's wrong? Next statement. So that means you think we're wrong? Next statement. So you think you're better than we are? Next statement. Who made you the judge? Just who do you think you are? You're ruining our happiness with your pious judgmentalism. You are a danger to our way of life. You see the progression? (laughs) People get irritated with someone who has a genuine case of Christianity. Just your presence makes them feel condemned. You know, your presence can make people feel condemned. You know why? Because the law of God is written on everybody's heart. And deep down, everybody knows what you're saying has a ring of truth to it. One of our greatest evangelistic um, tracks or supports or whatever you want to call it is the conscience of man. Because... Romans 2 says, in the heart of every man, the law of God has been placed there. It doesn't mean he's a Christian. It doesn't mean he knows the source of or acknowledges God or anything like that, but he knows right and wrong. Now, he can suppress that knowledge as time goes on, Romans 1 says. He can become seared in his conscience, no doubt. But the reason you make them feel the way they feel condemned is because in their conscience, deep down, There's a ring of truth to what you're saying. And they'll just get louder and louder and scream and attack and malign you to ease their own conscience. And so go to, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. That's Proverbs 1.10. They malign you. They call you dangerous. Go to verse 5, 1 Peter 4, verse 5. You, you want to entrust judgment to God. You don't want to judge. You don't want to bring judgment down on people. You want to entrust judgment to God. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Those who malign you, those who attack you, those who are unbelievers, uh, they are just amassing a debt to God that they will spend eternity paying unless they repent. Every single human being who has ever lived apart from Christ will find themselves in the lake of fire one day. Turn to Revelation 20. Let me just show you this. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Ever since Genesis 3, ever since Genesis 3, Satan has tried to deceive sinners into believing there is no such thing as judgment. There is no God. God does not care. God does not know. God is indifferent. They've tried to redefine God. They've tried to soften God. 
Not, he's not a God of wrath. He's not a God of judgment. Revelation chapter 20 is contrary to their delusion. Look at Romans, Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Yes, God does throw people into the lake of fire. That is a solemn, sobering passage of Scripture. But they will give an account, five, verse 5 of First Peter says, but they will give an account back in First Peter 4, 5, to him who is ready to judge. He stands ready to judge. When the attributes of God is, he is a God of wrath. God is angry with sinners every day. The only way to have, be at peace with God is through the peace offering that he sent into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through Christ. God is at war with man because man goes his own way, because man rebels against God, because man uh, wants to be God, because man wants to elevate himself above God, just like Satan. And God will judge man. Man just continually amasses more and more judgment the longer he rejects, the longer he curses, the longer he attacks God's people. He just keeps amassing judgment. And unless he repents, this is the judgment he will face. And then verse 6, the power of the gospel. Embrace the power of the gospel. Back in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. This is a difficult text, as I said, because of that first statement. Some people have said that this refers to those who are spiritually dead. Verse, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are spiritually dead, but that's really not the way the word dead has been used by Peter in this context. Some have said that this is the ones being preached to were in fact dead, but that would be wrong. You don't preach to dead people. You don't go and give people a second chance who have died. That's not this, that is not this kind of theology. This is people who have already died. And what he is simply saying is some who have been martyred, some who have already, been, who have already died, had the gospel preached to them. That's all he's saying. He's saying they were preached this gospel. And this, and no matter how they, notice how verse, verse 6 is worded. That though they were judged in the flesh as men, though that, no matter how they were treated in the flesh as men, they now live in the spirit according to the will of God. This basically tells you what happens to you after you die. Because of their belief and trust in the gospel, when the, and, they, and, and, and they were martyred for it, judged in the flesh as men, now they live in the Spirit according to the will of God. They d died possibly as martyrs. We can't be sure of that, but they died possibly as martyrs. And now they live 
in the presence of God, in the Spirit, according to the will of God. That just basically tells you what happens when you die. When you die, death is the separation of your spirit and your body. That's death. And your spirit either goes to the presence of Christ or it goes to a place preparing for judgment, hell. And so he's basically just basically saying that's what, what happens. I believe that's the answer to that question. Matthew says, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. They put off their earthly bodies to be in the presence of Christ. That's all it's meaning. And one day they'll get a new body. 1 Corinthians 15, one day they're going to get a resurrected body. So this is how we live. This is how we are to live. This is how we are to live in the meantime, between the glory he promises at the end of chapter 3 until that glory is realized to remain faithful in the flesh, we do it by embracing Christ's attitude and we do it by staying away from our former life, our former sins, by expecting to be the world to malign us and not to understand us. The world does understand us. And by trusting in the power trusting in the power of the God, oh, and trusting judgment to God, and then trusting in the power of the gospel. And that's the message we preach. We preach that until Christ comes again. We proclaim that. Father, I thank you for this time this morning. I just thank you, God, for the truth of First Peter. And God, these things that we can consider this morning, Father, there's so much here to apply. There's so much here for us to think about. How shall we then live? And we live in faithfulness to you while we wait for that day when we'll be separated from these bodies and then you'll be in your presence. We love you and thank you for this time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.